We're in the midst of a series of lessons entitled, Always Be Ready. And our key scripture verse is 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. So let's read it out loud together as we start. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. So, in other words, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it, and we must always be ready to explain the evidence for our faith to others. This morning, we're going to focus on evidence for the resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the clinching proof of Jesus' deity and is at the very core of Christian faith. Simply put, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. If Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, he is who he said he is, and our Christian faith is confirmed. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, he was a liar, lunatic, or worse, and there is no faith at all. In his book, Man Alive, Michael Green makes this point well. I put the uh, there in your notes. Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of faith. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled out like a damp squib with his re- as execution. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Look what the Apostle Paul had to say about the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Had you turned there a moment ago, so follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Evidence for the resurrection. We need to examine the evidence for ourselves. We need to know why or why not we do or do not believe in the resurrection. This morning, let me just introduce you to the evidence. Here's the reasons why I am convinced, beyond reasonable doubt, that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, proving himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and establishing Christianity as the one and the only true faith. Evidence number one is Jesus' death. See, before we can cite evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we must first be sure that he died. One popular attempt to explain away the resurrection has been to assert that Jesus never really died, but he merely swooned or fainted on the cross, fooling his friends and enemies into thinking that he was dead. And then after his burial, Jesus allegedly regained consciousness, escaped from the tomb, and appeared to his followers, deceiving them into believing that he had risen. Well, what about this so-called swoon theory? Did Jesus really die? Well, the evidence for Jesus' death is overwhelmingly convincing. 
All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, agree that Jesus was dead using terms like yielded the spirit or breathed his last. And Jesus' enemies were convinced that he was dead. The centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion, Pilate who ordered the crucifixion, the soldiers who assisted with the crucifixion, they all knew he was dead. Medical science concurs that Jesus died. In John 19 and verse 34 we read, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Dr. Truman Davis, a medical examiner and coroner, observes that there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart, and we therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died. Joseph and Nicodemus, who prepared Jesus' body for burial, they had no doubts that Jesus was dead. The women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning knew that he was dead. Even secular history in that day counts for the uh, reality of Jesus' death. Besides, when you think about the swoon theory carefully, it just doesn't make sense. Someone who went through the torture of that whipping that Jesus went through with that cat of nine tails, uh, probably partially if not fully disemboweled, and then having to carry his own cross up to the place called Golgotha, and then being nailed to a cross for six hours. Nah. Jesus died. That brings us to evidence number two, Jesus' claims. Many times during his ministry, before his crucifixion, Jesus publicly claimed that he would die and then rise again. Here's just a few examples. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and be raised up on the third day day. Matthew 17 verses 22 and 23, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised again on the third day. Matthew 20 verses 18 and 19, the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him up to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him and on the third day he will be raised up. And so Jesus claimed that he would rise again. This was his pre-announced plan. And this bold prediction lends incredible evidence to the case for the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the angel at the empty tomb referred back to Jesus' claims in Luke 24, verses 6 and 7. Let's read these verses out loud together. Would you read them with me? He is not here, but raised up. Remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross, and in three days rise up? Perhaps Wilbur Smith sums up the importance of Jesus' claims best when he writes, when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead on the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say unless he was sure he was going to rise. No founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say a thing like that. Which brings us to evidence number three. That's Jesus' tomb. It's a fact that cannot be denied that Jesus died and was buried. Both biblical and historical records record Jesus' burial in great detail. So let's go to the scene of the crime, if you will. Let's go to Jesus' tomb and examine the material evidence that we find there. As we come upon the scene, the first thing we notice is the displaced stone. 
Again, all four Gospels agree that the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb on Friday was rolled away on Sunday. The very fact that this stone had been removed at all is remarkable in and of itself. These stones were very, very large, often in excess of a ton. They settled into a trough that had been dug in front of the entrance, kind of clunk, and then they were sealed, and um, it was just a huge stone. One historical account, in fact, describes the stone around Jesus' tomb as a stone which 20 men could not roll away. Think huge. So how was this stone displaced? The women could not have moved it. And they were surprised to find that it had already been removed when they arrived on Sunday morning. The disciples could not have secretly moved it without causing a great disturbance, even if the guards were supposedly asleep. So how was the stone displaced? I think something supernatural took place on that first Easter Sunday morning. Well, what else do we see at the tomb? We look inside the tomb, we see the abandoned grave clothes. John 20 goes into great detail describing the abandoned grave clothes found inside the tomb. The empty tomb, the empty shroud, lends evidence to the resurrection. The wording in John 20 points to the grave clothes still lying neatly in the very spot where Jesus had been buried, as though Jesus had somehow just vanished without disturbing them at all. I mean, no thief would have taken the time to unwrap Jesus' body in this way. Something supernatural took place on that first Easter Sunday morning, something so supernatural that, in fact, John tells us in John 20 and verse 8 that when he himself saw the grave clothes, he immediately believed in the resurrection. It was readily apparent to him what had taken place. So what else do we see at the tomb? Nothing. That's the point. The empty tomb itself. One can question almost every other aspect of the resurrection, but we must still explain the empty tomb. The four Gospels agree that although Jesus' body was placed in the tomb on Friday, it was nowhere to be found on Sunday. Even Jesus' enemies did not attempt to explain away the obvious. The tomb was empty. That's a well-documented fact that no one can deny. Now, of course, Christianity's opponents have provided numerous theories as to how the tomb became empty. Some said the disciples stole the body. Actually, the Jews themselves fabricated that story according to Matthew 28. The soldiers claimed the disciples stole the body while they were sleeping. Now, imagine giving that kind of testimony in a court of law. How did they know if they were sleeping? And besides, the disciples were hiding in fear for their own lives and didn't expect the resurrection. They didn't even believe the first resurrection reports and they had absolutely nothing to gain by stealing the body in the first place. So somebody else said, well, the enemy stole the body. Excuse me? They already had the body. That would have defeated their whole purpose in posting a guard and sealing the tomb. Besides, if they did steal the body, then why, when the disciples began to publicly proclaim the resurrection, why did they not produce the body and forever silence Christianity? So somebody said, well, the women obviously went to the wrong tomb. Really? 
They watched carefully to see where Jesus was buried on Friday. Besides, there's strong evidence that this was a private garden tomb, not a public cemetery. Add to that the angel at the tomb, was he lost too? And finally, if they went to the wrong tomb, once again, why then did the Jews not point out the correct tomb and forever snuff out the resurrection reports? Friends, there's no point in arguing the fact that the tomb was empty. Everyone, friend and foe, knew it was empty. The only question is, how did it get that way? And the only reasonable answer is that something supernatural took place on that first Easter Sunday, the resurrection. So, at the scene of the crime, Jesus' tomb, we find the material evidence of the displaced stone, the abandoned grave clothes, and the empty tomb itself, all supporting the case for the resurrection. But we're not finished. Evidence number four, Jesus' appearances. One critic rightly said, an empty tomb does not a resurrection make. That's why Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are so critical. For the 40 days following his resurrection and prior to his ascension, Jesus appeared in flesh and bone on at least 11 different occasions in Scripture. They are listed for you in their probable order there in your lesson notes. Now, as you look at that list, let me just make a few observations. First of all, these witnesses were over 500 in number. This wasn't a single hallucinating individual or even a handful of delusional wishful thinkers. These were 500 credible men and women who could give first-hand eyewitness testimony to seeing Jesus alive. Now, if the rule of thumb is that a fact in a courtroom is established by calling two to three witnesses, imagine calling over 500 witnesses to take the witness stand. To put that in perspective, if each witness was limited to 15 minutes on the stand and we began early Monday morning and we continued around the clock without any recess at all, the last witness would not take the stand until Friday evening, 129 hours later. Now let me tell you, that is more than enough testimony to convince any jury that the resurrection is a fact. Another thing I'd like to point out is that these witnesses were doubters at first. It's true. They didn't expect the resurrection, and when Jesus first appeared to them, they didn't immediately recognize him. In the list, we find doubting Thomas, who wouldn't believe the testimony of his own fellow apostles, and he had to be convinced by touching Jesus' wounds firsthand. But there's another doubter in the list that's even more skeptical than Thomas, and that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who before Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection was an unbelieving skeptic. But as Jesus appeared to him, he was convinced against his will of Jesus' deity, and he became a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he wrote the book of James for us in our New Testament. One other observation I'd make is that these witnesses were all martyrs for their faith. Most of these eyewitnesses willingly gave their lives for what they knew was the truth. Jesus is alive. Now, I can hear someone object, oh, religious zealous die for what they believe all the time. Yeah, but here's the difference. People will die for something if they sincerely believe it's true, but they will not die for something they positively know is false. 
There's no way these witnesses would have given their lives as martyrs if there was any doubt in their minds whatsoever that Jesus had risen. Jesus' post-resurrection appearances were the clinching proof that they needed. They ate with him. They talked with him. They walked with him. They spent time with him. He is alive. Well, there's one more reason for believing in the resurrection. Evidence number five is Jesus' influence. Although somewhat subjective when you add this piece of evidence on top of the other four, it can't be ignored. John Stott wrote, Perhaps the transformation of the disciples is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. On the day of the crucifixion, they were filled with sadness. On the first day of the week, with gladness. At the crucifixion, they were hopeless. On the first day of the week, their hearts glowed with certainty and hope. When the message of the resurrection first came, they were incredulous and hard to be convinced. But once they became assured, they never doubted again. What could account for the astonishing change in these men in so short a time? Only the resurrection. And Jesus' influence has been changing lives for 2,000 years. He's still changing lives today. He's healing broken homes and restoring fractured marriages. He's comforting those in sorrow and loneliness. He's giving hope to the hopeless. He's breaking the chains of bondage and oppression, setting captives free. He's bringing meaning and purpose to lives filled with chaos and stress. He's giving peace and assurance in the midst of a topsy-turvy COVID world. He's delivering people from various addictions. He's offering life, abundant and eternal life, to all those who will follow him as the forgiver and the leader of their lives. I myself can personally testify he has influenced and he has transformed my life. Jesus is alive. And that makes all the difference in our lives. Watch this. How do I know? I know because I was restless. How do I know? Because I was wild. Because I was addicted. I was lost. Because I was empty. I know because I was living behind a mask. How do I know Jesus is alive? Because he lives in me. Jesus did what no one else could do for me. He took the punishment for my failures, my wrong decisions, my selfishness, my pride, and my sin. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tortured. Crucified. And buried for me. But on the third day, he did exactly what he said he would do. Jesus rose up and walked right out of the tomb. The summer of 1985, July of 2007, February 2005, June 2003, and in August 1995, he walked into my life. And I've never been the same since. Now I am truly living. Now I am sober. I am at peace. I am fulfilled. Now I am free. Now I'm found. My God, my Savior, my best friend, my Lord, my Jesus, is alive.
The tomb may be empty, but my heart is full. Please be ready. This morning we've taken a closer look at evidence for the resurrection. We've specifically looked at five areas of evidence. Jesus' death, Jesus' claims, Jesus' tomb, Jesus' appearances, and Jesus' influence. These are the reasons why we can be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, proving himself to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and establishing Christianity as the one and the only way to God. Now we're going to read a scripture in just a moment, but before we get there, I want to take time out for just a second. And I want to talk to you and to anyone who might be listening and watching this later on online. And I just want to say, Jesus is alive for you. And Jesus' resurrection life is for you. And I want to invite you if you have never surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, if you have never acknowledged Him to be your personal Savior and Lord, what better time to do that than right now? To invite Him into your heart, to let Him be the risen Savior for you. If you want to know more about that, those of you that are here in the audience today, you can take that little communication card and you can check a box on there. I want to learn how to become a Christian. or I, I want to learn, uh, just talk to Pastor Mark about where I'm at in my relationship with Jesus. And If, if that's you today, check that box on that little communication card and, and let us know and you can turn that in and we'll, I'll make sure I get back in touch with you. Believe me, that's one that I try to follow up on like a tick on a hound dog, man. Because I am so concerned about your eternity. And what we're talking about today has everlasting consequence to it. You can't just walk away and say, well, that was a nice Easter Sunday. Like they said in the video that we watched at the very beginning, if Jesus rose from the dead, I got to do something. I got to do something. Let this be the day that you do something. Okay, let's close with this scripture. John 11, verses 25 and 26. Let's read it out loud together. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. They are given eternal life for believing in me and will never perish. Let's pray. God, thank you for that promise. Jesus, you made that possible because of your victory over the tomb. You made it possible because you are risen. Yes, you are risen indeed. And your resurrection life is the life that you have made available to us. 
the promise of abundant life here on this earth, the promise of eternal life in your presence forever and forever because we put our faith and our trust in you. And so today on this Easter Sunday, on this celebration of your resurrection, we claim that resurrection power, that resurrection life for our lives today. May we live victoriously. May we live in triumph. May we live knowing that whatever's going on around us in our lives this day, you have promised us that we're on the winning side. We are on your side. We have victory over death. We have victory over Satan. We have victory in this life. And help us to live victoriously, I pray. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.